Welcome to episode 245 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on May 31st, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and I've got an admission to make. The show I promised last time has hit a few problems. Basically, Chris Borman's audio went up in smoke. And so I'm going to create a show around the audio that was saved from that group chat. And that was with Superintendent Andy Cox and Professor Rachel Aldred. In fact, Rachel was a mere doctor when we recorded the session, so congrats to her for the upgrade. Meanwhile, Here's a conversation with Callum Skinner, the Olympic track cyclist who won silver in the Olympic sprint at the 2016 Summer Olympics and gold in the team sprint. So did you kind of do time trialling before you got onto the track? What, how did you get into cycling very first? No, I had a pretty much immediate dislike for... Uh, endurance events and a kind of immediate affinity for for sprint events i've always loved speed um and when i was too young to have a car motorbike license or anything like that um it was a great way to get that kick um for anyone who's not been on the velodrome it's 48 degree banking Mm. uh you know nowadays we can hit speeds up to you know almost 90 kilometers an hour behind the motorbike um, and you get a couple G when you go down those corners. And uh, for a bit of an adrenaline junkie, a bit of a speed freak, that's what really appealed to me. But um, my, my story of getting involved is quite simple. I just kind of, my family moved around quite a lot when I was younger, moved to Edinburgh, uh, went down to Meadowbank Velodrome, um, which is now demolished, and uh, just gave it a go and found uh, a wonderful kind of thriving community full of people that had infectious enthusiasm. And uh, I picked that up pretty quickly. Was one of the impetuses behind this, I'm assuming one of the impetuses, must have been Sir Chris Hoy. Yeah, I mean, as a as a Scot during that time, it was one of the few sports that we're actually good at. Um, I think it was that, an elephant polo. Um, but yeah, I have this memory of Chris Hoy um, at the Commonwealth Games with uh, a sole tyre lapped around. I think it's a chain whip or something like that. Um, mm. And had this kind of uh, immediate kind of interest in the in the venue itself. It's kind of captivating as it looks a bit like a wall, of, a kind of wall of death in a circus. And then also kind of had that immediate understanding that this was something that that Scotland was good at, and maybe I could find success in it too. And if if Wikipedia is correct, and if my arithmetic is correct, you were twelve when. Uh, Chris Hoy got that that very, very famous, uh, well, a number of uh, famous Olympic golds, uh, but in in um, in Athens, so in two thousand and four. So that you'd have been twelve. 
Yeah, no, I think that's about the time I kind of really got interested in cycling. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of a choice between that or, or rugby. Um, I'd kind of got to the, the uh, Edinburgh Academy level for rugby. Um, but cycling was just something that, you know, I really enjoyed. I think, you know, there's a few other elements that played into it. I was... I was asthmatic, so um, well, still am, and um, sprinting kind of really suits me down to the ground because you can, you know, I was notorious for forgetting my inhaler, and my mum was always telling me off, and uh, you could do your effort flat out for about you know ten seconds, maybe twenty, be out of breath, gasping for air, and then you have a half an hour to the cover where you can chat to your mates and then go up and do it again. Um, you know, whereas endurance and team sports, it's kind of a continual slog against your against your kind of chronic illness i guess so that, that was another kind of factor that that kind of nudged me towards it but yeah i mean you, you're saying sprinting there but then I, I look at your palmares i look at your your sporting achievements again on on, on wikipedia and you, you've got kilos there so you, they're not sprint they're they're a thousand meters so yeah the the kilos an event that i I absolutely love because it's it's right at the limit of of what sprinters can do. Like if it was a if it was a kilo and an extra half lap, you wouldn't really get sprinters anything in it. Um, and you know it's, it's at the limit of what endurance riders can do. Um, you know we we kind of poke fun at them when they attempt to do a flat out effort and their power is still about a third of of anything that we can produce. Um, you know they they can't get that effort out in that short period of time. So it's a very it's a very interesting event. It looks quite simple on the front, on the face of it, but it's kind of open to all disciplines. Um, and I, I, I kind of love it. It's just a kind of max out, you know, balls to the wall, full on effort. And you can end up in a whole world of pain at the end of it. Um, you know, I'd say in that, in that last lap, it's not unusual for athletes to end up, you know, vomiting or passing out, or if you're that altitude, ending up on oxygen. Um, so it was. It, it used to be a, a, a kind of one effort hit out, um, but the UCI's recently made it too, so it makes it even more challenging. Um, but it's yeah, it's an event I absolutely love, and I'd love to see it back in the Olympics one day. I was also a Scottish um, scratch champion, twenty meter scratch champion, senior a while ago. But that's that's the that's the limited nature of my endurance results. <laughs> No, it's a good way of thinking about it. Like, so the, the kilo was like a basically an endurance event for sprinters. Yes, um, you, you definitely wouldn't see uh, any of the, the man ones, we'd call them in the team sprint. Their distance is 250 metres. So essentially you're kind of uh, indoor athletics runners, kind of sprinters, kind of distance. Like they, they, they just, they wouldn't even survive two laps. It's, it mm. takes a special kind of sprinter to be able to, to go flat out for four. Bit bit of colour here for you, uh, Callum. In that, uh, when the when it was uh, taken out of the Olympics, when the UCI basically volunteered to take it out to the Olympics, I actually went to the UCI uh, with a, with a big um, petition that I'd managed to to get together. And uh, the UCI at the time was saying, "Oh, no, it was the Olympics. Were told us that to do it." And I went to the Olympics in Lausanne as well, and they said, "No, no, no, it was the UCI who did it." And uh, I basically confronted confronted them there so that was oh, i've no idea what year that was but that you know you know chris hoyer at that time of course that was his signature event mm. and it was a signature event for everyone it was a blue riband event for everybody and then for not to see it in the olympics when it's absolutely it's track cycling's you know premier event isn't it so it's a, it's such a shame it's no longer there in the olympics yeah, I think in I think in Chris Hoy's uh, personal story, it was probably the making of him. Like he always had that ability to be 
world class, world beating, and in those other events. And it was only when the kilo was taken out, I guess, he was forced to to try and make it in the other ones. And he obviously did it to to great success. But um, you know, the world of sports politics is uh, is something I've I've kind of started to get more involved in, and uh, I've not found someone yet who's been able to explain to me how it works. It's uh, it's a complete mystery. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll 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 leave that behind. We'll we'll go fast forward to your gladly yes. uh, Olympic medal. <laughs> <laughs> so Rio, 2016 team sprint. Uh, were you were you the favourites? You're Brits. You're cyclists. You've got to be the favourites. Is that you know? Was that the, the what was happening at the time? You you just you everybody expected. Of course, you're going to win. No, we weren't the favourites. I think William Hill put us at like 22 to one. Um. And I think the Kiwis were on three to one or something like that. But we'd we'd finished in sixth place at the World Championships a few months before. Um, and you know, for a British team, especially a, a team sprint, that that result is is devastating. Um, so you know, from the face of it, we were we were a country mile away from being you know even medal competitive at Olympic Games. But can and, we, uh, but we we expect that. We kind of expect to peak at the Olympics, and people almost don't care what you do, you know, at the World Championships because they know, they assume, because we've been told this, is that you know they're irrelevant. It's the Olympics that that counts. I mean, I mean, to an extent, but I think I think even with our team, uh, people started to kind of lose lose faith in it. We we were the the kind of first team to medal out of that British team at the Olympic Games. And most of the athletes were pretty blunt about it, saying, well, if those guys can do it, then we certainly can. Um, and it was the same with the journalists at the at the pre-Olympic camp. You know, most of them uh, came to the Team Splint Press interview um, with very few questions prepared because it just wasn't going to be something that was of interest because they didn't think they were we were medal contenders. There was questions like, so you're looking forward to visiting Rio then or something like that. <laughs> you know, as um for, from our point of view, we we felt like kind of light offs and but maybe that kind of captivated us to to really up our game when the time came. So that helped then so you all of a sudden you're underdogs again. I mean I'd I'd like to say it helped, but I don't want to encourage people to to write off uh, teams like that again um but the the pressure was absolutely monumental um you know i was i was trying to fill chris hoy's shoes and that was a that was a tagline i'd been given since the ages of about 13 by the edinburgh press then the scottish press then the british press um and what's more i was trying to do a performance that was equal to Chris, but also one that would stand up to the mantle of my two teammates who were both reigning Olympic champions, Jason Kenny and Philip Hines. Um, and, you know, although it's a team event, it's quite easy to identify the weak link in the team. And it was nine times out of 10 me. I remember, I remember looking through the timesheet and it, and it gives you an update of where each team places based on when each rider um, finishes the effort. So it would be like the first lap would be in first place. Philip Hines gets us off to a world record setting pace. Jason Kenny takes over. We'd be in second place or first place. Callum's going to take over. His lap was the 10th quickest of the competition. And overall, that adds up to sixth place. Um, so the, the the pressure was was huge. And you talk about that, that culture and that expectation of the team. You know, every single athlete that... Um, British cycling has fielded to an Olympic Games since 2008 bar one has come away with a medal of some color and that's that's kind of 
all blacks Manchester United kind of territory for for hit late and success late, maybe even above when it, if you just isolate it to Olympic medals. So the the pressure was huge. Hmm. So let's go on to that that all British final then. So you mentioned Jason Kenny there, who you're now racing against. Yes. Um, now clearly, obviously, you you know Kenny uh, uh, Jason uh, very very well. Uh, so what were you thinking on the start line? If if you were thinking. Yeah, had you written yourself off already? I mean, from what you just told me there, you know, you 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 obviously know the time gaps that you're going to have. Had you? Did you think? Well, I can actually beat Jason. Oh well, the good news is that I knew I'd suddenly found form better than sixth place when it came to the team sprint in the Olympics because you know we'd we'd set an Olympic record and and kind of got that gold medal and then the the, the individual sprint you're correct followed followed after that and it was a British British final with Jace. And uh, we we actually had some fun with it, um, <laughs> which sounds a bit weird at an Olympic final. But um, to be honest, I my sole and only focus was that team event. And then by the time we got to the individual sprint, it, you know, anything else was a bonus. Um, but I, I'd actually come through the competition a lot stronger than than Jason. Jason uh, had had to take one of his rides to best of three because we take it to best of three once it gets to the quarters. So I kind of felt like the momentum was 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 in my court. Um, where, but where it's where it differs compared to a normal competition is that the sprints held over three days, so we had to actually spend a night together before the Olympic final, and um, because we were roommates in the village, um, and that's where we started to have some fun. So we, I, I treated himself to the village, I treated him to the village McDonald's, and uh, tried to play a bit of mind Spiking games with him. him before. Yeah, well, no, I had it too, so we thought it's equal dis- disadvantage. Um, and then I remember we were we were going to sleep the night before the Olympic final. It was a twin bedroom, and we were we were next to each other. And um, I turned off the lights and went, "Oh, good night, Jason." And then I got myself prepared with this death stare, looking straight at him. And then about you know thirty seconds later, turned on the light again and went, "Sleep well." <laughs> but it's, but I mean, like we're really good mates, like off the track. And then when you know, for me anyway, when that helmet comes on, that's when it's it's game time, mm. and you do literally anything you can to to beat your opponent. Mm. Was it easier or harder to be in a final it's, with a it's teammate? All, it's always harder facing a teammate, in in my opinion. I think. I think you have the benefit of the unknown when you're racing um, a foreign rider. You can you can quite easily compartmentalize what they might be good at. Um, but when it becomes uh, when it, when you're racing a Brit, almost like too much information becomes becomes a bad thing. Mm. Um, so, for instance, if you're if you're racing a foreigner, you might think, okay, his position's this in the team. He's probably good at this. He's probably good at that. And you try and make the same assumptions about a Brit. But then you'll start thinking of moments when they prove you wrong and you'll think, mm. you know, is he is he a long sprinter or is he a short sprinter or has he got the power? Or has he not? Has he got is his head gonna fall off? Is it not? And you end up with too much information and you start questioning your whole strategy. Um, you know, we we've joked sometimes that like British nationals can be harder than pretty much any other race that we do because it's that issue, you know, too much information um, can be a bit of a hindrance in that instance. And what do the coaches say to you? How do they how do they handle you know, uh, an all British final. What are the what are the coaches? Are they just leave it to you? You know, just say right. But you, it's up to you now. It's we can't tell yeah, you anything. Well, it's, it's it's our team, mate. Well, that's that's the other kind of disadvantage and kind of bone of contention because they they don't give you anything. Um, they basically just kind of take you to the line and give you generic encouragement, like come on. 
and in an event as tactical as the as the sprint like you kind of mm. need a little bit more than that um and even mm. at the sidelines they, they they won't be shouting cues they won't be shouting if if your opponent's kind of exploiting you at some points which we rely on quite heavily um and i guess that's where like i didn't feel it at the time but on the flexion probably felt a little bit of a disadvantage because you know jason's already been to two olympic games and picked up numerous olympic medals and and uh you know for the first time in my career I was one well, not the first time, but for one of the few occasions in my career, I was racing with with no team support, basically coaching support. Um, but it was an interesting dynamic, and it was a challenge I was happy to take on. I've not got any qualms about it. Um, but it's an interesting question just to see how that all how that all pans out. Because I know a lot of people might be thinking that from the stands or from the TV. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's an odd one how, how the team actually psychologically. But obviously, obviously, you just got to the coaches just got to walk away, haven't they? Yeah, and I think that's probably the best the best situation. You know, I think from their point of view, they have to kind of detach themselves a little bit from any kind of favourites they might have, and mm. you know, if if they you know suggested what what has sometimes been called like a disrespectful tactic like going from the gun or trying to do a bit of kidology and and that ended up changing the result then you know maybe it's the it's for the best that they they kind of keep their mouth shut and uh leave it to the leaders i mean they've done a lot of work up until that point so you should be you should be well fate well you know in a good position to deal with it but um not against a, a leader of the caliber of jason kenny and they must be pretty made up anyway, because they know you're going to get guaranteed uh, two medals here. So they're they're kind of happy. They're they're almost who cares who wins? Yeah, I mean their box is ticked. Basically, <laughs> um, you know, uh, UK Sport funds on medals, and they've and they've got two for the you know, and so they're they're pretty satisfied. Um, but you know, I'm sure I'm sure deep down they probably have their their um, deferred winners. Uh, which I'd which I'd love to know, but they're they're far too professional at their jobs to to say. Mm. So you've got a gold, you've got a silver. What's what? Tell the layman what it's like, the layperson. What's the what's what's it like to at the time win win a medal, and then now what's it like now having that medal? What do, do you dine out on it for the rest of your life? What's the what's how does it change your life? No, at the beginning, it's um, it's totally surreal, and it's it's almost like a mindset that I don't that I really struggle to describe, and one that I don't think I'll ever kind of find again. Um, I think, you know, and uh, without being insensitive, I, th- I think it's probably a little bit like kind of having a man an episode of mania, an episode of kind of that manic phase where you feel invincible. Um, you know, any issue that gets chucked your way, you kind of shrug it off and go, oh, I don't care, I'm Olympic champion. Um, because it's been your sole like purpose for the last 10 years. You know, everything you've been doing from like diet to sleep to sacrificing social life, like every part of your life has been consumed by this one project and you've got it. Um, and what's more, the way we did it, you know, to be underdogs, uh, to beat the odds on favorites, the Kiwis, to do it with my best mates, dealing with the pressure, like you, you really feel untouchable. Um, and and that's quite a nice feeling for a little while. Um, and then I guess it kind of starts to to disappear slowly. You know, you, you come home and you realize you've, you've still got bills to pay. Olympic medals don't pay them. Mm. Um, well, not directly anyway. And um and you realize that, you know, on the whole, not not a great deal, like, fundamentally changes. You know, people 
listen to your opinion more. Uh, people are a, a little bit more interested in kind of hiring you as uh, for corporate events and sponsorships and stuff like that. Um, but the fundamentals stay the same. And I think there's a little bit, I think a lot of Olympians face this where there's a little bit of a kind of savior sy- uh, syndrome when it comes to an Olympic medal. It's kind of like whatever issues that I've got going on in my life, it will be solved when I have that Olympic gold medal or Olympic medal. Um, and that's, that's just not reality. Um, so, you know, uh, so then you start to sink a little bit and, and for me, it actually ended up in a bit of a, uh, you know, in a clinical sense, ended up being kind of depression with, with anxiety as well, which kind of went untreated for a little while. Um, and then kind of ended up in my retirement. Um, now I don't want to kind of, uh, dampen the kind of sheen on that on that gold. It still is, you know, as bright to me as as it ever has been. Um, but I, I think I think there needs to be a little bit more preparation for success as well as failure. I think as athletes, we're very good at preparing for possible failures, but not so much at preparing for success. Maybe that's an ego thing. Maybe that's a superstitious thing. Um, but. Yeah, absolutely love those kind of few weeks afterwards. You're just partying constantly, enjoying that experience, feeling invincible, um, but it doesn't last forever. Callum, the, the, the issues you had, mm. do you think you would have had them anyway? Or was it potentially something about cycling, potentially something about British cycling, potentially something about sport that maybe brought that out? I think it's I think it's a mixture of all kind of three in 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 a way. I think you know, say for instance, if I'd gone and just won a silver, um, you know, I, I probably would have carried on, and that Olympic distraction would to to win an Olympic gold that that drive would still be there because that was my ultimate goal. Um, but I think what that huge distraction did was mask a lot of the other things that were kind of unresolved um, in in my life, I guess. Um, you know, British cycling made it a little bit more difficult than they could have when I was kind of trying to seek help, um, just from one individual, um, you know, I still think really highly of the, of the system and the team. Um, but it's, uh, the way I was treated by, by that one individual wasn't, wasn't right. Um, and, uh, yeah, and, and led to some pretty, pretty substandard situations, I guess. Um, but no, I'd, I'd say it's almost a bit like a, a kind of mourning process, I guess. You have this 10-year focus and in a way that, that leaves you. And that's been the means in which you can sideline everything else that's going on because you're focused on this one this one purpose, this one goal, winning Olympic gold. And then when you lose that, you almost feel a little bit empty, I guess. Um, you kind of think, well, well, what next? Do I go, do I win another one? And, and what does that mean? Um, you know what it's it's difficult to come up with with a kind of follow-up purpose when you've been so focused on having all your legs in one basket I guess is what I'm trying to say um, but thankfully I kind of found some really amazing support and started on the road to recovery. Do you, do you think I mean this is the preconception here but you can tell us if it's if it's true or not the, the preconception is that cycling in, in mental health terms, is normally ahead of the game. So, you know, we, we obviously had the, you know, the, the aggregation of marginal gains on the performance side, but then you had, you know, psychologists, um, one in particular, working with the team, and that that cemented in the public's mind that, you know, cycling's uh, way of treating mental health and, and how to perform and how to, 
to to get over um, you know mental blocks and stuff is pretty mm-hmm. good. D- do you think cycling is still ahead of the curve, or was that is that like a, it's a preconception? It's not actually true. I, I think uh, I presume the guy you're referring to is uh, Doctor Steve Peters. Um, yes. and yes. when when Jim he Peter. was in yeah when when he was in the system uh cycling was by far and away uh, like ahead of the curve and you know he was the guy who kind of helped me um on my road to the cover you know a lot i have a great deal of admiration for him um and a lot of gratitude for the for the work that he's done and my family do too um but they they were the head of the curve in the sense that steve wasn't just a sports psychologist um in terms of sports psychology british cycling and a lot of other systems are still bang on the money they're still going to be there to make sure that athletes can perform as best they can now where that lacks a little bit and where steve used to pick up the slack um was if you had any other kind of mental issue, mental health issues or lifestyle issues or anything like that um because i found myself a little bit kind of trapped when i was initially going through um my diagnosis and treatment um i found myself kind of trapped between sports psychology and general psychology uh sports psychology was was helpful in in terms of a few strategies to help me perform better but weren't very good on the lifestyle front and then when i went for general psychology it was um it was kind of helpful from a lifestyle point of view but didn't actually properly understand what the life of an athlete actually is and when you break it down, it's, it's, it, it can be quite unusual to, compared to what a lot of people tend to experience. So one of the suggestions they make would be like, oh, well, why can't you just take, you know, leave for a couple of months on sick? And I was like, well, you know, we're not employees. I, I would, you know, I'd lose my place in the team. And what's more, when I did, when I would come back, I'd be, you know, maybe six months ahead of my team, uh, behind my teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, so the practicalities of that was really tricky. And that's, that's why I ended up landing on, on Steve as someone who could help me because he understood how my mind worked from a sports psychology point of view. And that was really well trained. Um, but I was a total mess when I tried to apply that same psychology to lifestyle issues um, that were going on alongside. And that's where he bridged the gap. He used that skill set of being a forensic psychi- uh, psychiatrist, uh, us, um, a general psychiatrist, uh, you know, he's, he's also been like a, a, a doctor and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Like he's one of the most educated men I've, I've ever met in my life, but he was amazing at bridging the gap. He understood the unique challenges that, that athletes face. Um, and also he had the perfect toolkit in which to help me get better, which had been established in sport from, from years before. So another preconception that that people have got about cycling, I know you are involved in, in, in this in some way, and that's, 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 um, doping and anti-doping. So you're involved mm. in the anti-doping side. I had, to, I had to correct myself there before I put my foot. <laughs> um, so you're involved in the anti-doping side. Uh, but the preconception from from people is that cycling uh, is a sport uh, intimately, con- for, for very well-known reasons, intimately connected with uh, with doping. So uh, do you think we'll ever get the mainstream world to believe that cycling? is a clean sport. I tell you when I, when I first began as a cyclist, um, you know, especially given the, the history of cycling, um, you know, I was really steadfast in saying like, you know, that's, that's not going to be me. And, you know, 
whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to do it by the book. And basically, if I can do anything to try and improve cycling's reputation, then then that's a good day. Um, but I guess where it starts to get a little bit disheartening is that um, sometimes uh, if you're on the British cycling team, especially with some of the recent stories that have come out, you can start to become almost a little bit guilty by association. Mm. Uh, so we've seen the controversies that have come along from you know, Chris Froome, uh, Lizzie Armstead, now Dynan, uh, Dr. Richard Freeman, uh, one of the eight brothers, I've forgotten which one off the top of my head. Um, and then, you know, all of a sudden I'm sitting down watching, um, have I got news for you? And they make a, they make a jibe about how all, all, all of the British cyclists are doping and, um, and stuff like that makes me quite upset to be honest. I think, you know, I pride myself on, on, my integrity and and wanting to do better by the sport as much as I can, but I, I wouldn't say we're we're anywhere near kind of a new era of of cycling from a public perception point of view. I think there's a lot of things that have been done really well, um, but the the main reason why I decided to get into the anti doping kind of campaigner world was that um, my medical records were were hacked by um, a Russian. Uh, state-sponsored hacking group called Han- uh, Fancy Bears mm. after the 2016 Rio Olympic Games, and they uh, they published uh, two TUEs that I had, which were both for asthma medication. And um, you know, my response was uh, to publish my NHS medical records from when I was younger, showing that both these medications had been described then as a legitimate form of treatment by a uh, by an organisation that has no interest at all in um, in performance enhancement. Um, but that that's kind of that was the catalyst i guess you know I, I was getting a little bit fed up of of people always doubting cyclists of people doubting the anti-doping system um and whether that's letting down clean athletes like myself by leaking information um or by the anti-doping authorities failing uh to go after proven drug treats it was a whole mixture of things um but you know i, I just feel like it's something i, I owe to the sport it, it's something that needs to be better and if there's a kid that can come through after me who isn't guilty by association or isn't tarred with the same brush then we're going to be in a much better place mm. now you're retired now which which you've, you've you've touched on you've got your own podcast yes so you've got your own microphone set up there which is great so you've got pod crash uh which is you with you and phil your your former teammate uh you you bring on um guests and and you you talk to them and then i noticed one of your recent guests was um was somebody who's doing a phd on how athletes cope with retirement so Mm -hmm. how are you coping and i'm not talking about um covid19 here and you know how you're coping now (laughs) with with what we're all going through but how, how are you just coping with with retirement in general ignoring COVID-19? Uh, well it's, it's good you added in that caveat because since COVID-19 everything's dropped off a cliff but um, mm. <laughs> what I will say is uh, it, it's been really exciting I'd say I'd say British Cycling when I was younger did an excellent job of finding a, a really driven motivated kid who just had too much on um, and one of the first things they did when they brought me down to Manchester was get me you know, nailed in on that single focus, which was winning Olympic gold. Um, but since the time, and what I've managed to do is, is kind of broaden that out a bit more and kind of start saying yes to opportunities whenever they arise. And it's led, it's led to some absolutely amazing experiences. Like, you know, I've 
delivered a speech at the White House on anti-doping. Um, you know, I've, I've been part of a, a nationwide campaign for um, Sports Direct in terms of managing it from behind the scenes. Um, you know, I've doing I've, I've got two new upstarts uh, on the go. One's called Five Links Coffee and one's called uh, Hindsight Vision. Um, so, you know, I'm basically kind of just casting that net wide from being, you know, an entrepreneur to communications, to marketing, to, to anything. And I find it so gratifying to, to have that, that variety. Um, you know, the life of a sprinter is very, uh, you know, very, it's really quite simple. You're kind of based in Manchester a lot of the year. You maybe have, you know, five, six races a year, something like that. And, and it can seem quite monotonous. So to bring back that variety and bring back that kind of teenage scattered but driven approach is really interesting and i guess the next step for me is to try and narrow that down and find that find that next olympics i guess but it's um it's been an incredibly exciting and gratifying time especially when you find a an employer or a contractor who who sees the value that you can bring to that organization through your athletic experience so you mentioned next olympics there but that was like an olympics kind of goal i'm assuming that you're talking about yeah metaphorical yeah yeah, the, the next Olympics, genuinely next Olympics, and this is this can now segue back into COVID nineteen, um, is cancelled in effect or, or delayed by a year. So people like Phil, other, I'm sure you're you're in touch with other um, athletes, not just even cycling athletes. Their their life is is turned upside down now because their their goal of of uh, going to, to to Tokyo is now well, pretty much evaporated. So how, how do you think people that you know, how, how do you think they're coping? I think it's, I think it's varied across the spectrum. Um, and I really feel for, for all the athletes out there um, because, uh, you know, we're starting to see quite a few concerns being raised uh, from a whole range of spectrums. You know, we're looking at kind of physical health because these guys are still pushing themselves as hard in training, but don't have any kind of physiotherapy or medical support. Um, mental health, uh, because, you know, most of these guys are used to being part of a team and they've lost that that date in the summer, which was going to be the highlight of their career. So it's, um, it's a really challenging time for a lot of these athletes. And then we still have the uncertainty that the organizing committee have said that the Olympics won't be postponed again, um, which is basically code word for, you know, if we do have to, if we do have to stop it because of COVID-19, it's likely to be canceled. Um, so it's, it's a tough time. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that, um, you know, poor athletes, because I, I appreciate that a lot of people are suffering from the COVID-19 situation, you know, far worse than, than they ever could be. Um, but what I am saying is just to appreciate, um, you know, the level of stress a lot of these athletes are under and extending an event like the Olympics by a year, uh, you know, might might seem like something that most athletes can take on the chin, but it's uh, especially for the, the more niche disciplines, the more niche sports, it's uh, it's going to be a big struggle to keep on pushing. Because as we were talking about before, you you kind of you prepare for an event and 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 it, you're not literally on a four year cycle, in effect. Mm, and and I, I think it's hit goals each year. Yeah, and I think it's something that maybe there's a little bit of misunderstanding with the public because I remember when I was getting ready for Rio, you know, maybe a, a few months out or something like that, people will have said, you know, or oh, you must be training really hard now then because the Olympics is just around the corner. 
And, um, you know, politely, I'm kind of saying, you know, this has been like a 10 year project. This has been, you know, 10 years of like blood, sweat and tears for what's essentially going to end up being a 44 second on the track, 44 second effort on the track. Um, so, you know, the, the level of dedication and focus doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't ebb and flow as much as people think just because the Olympics is coming along. It's for a lot of people, it can be a, a, a life, a life goal. Mm. Uh, talking about other life goals or other life skills, um, how big a part does cycling play in your life? So I'm not talking about going faster, uh, mm. round and round in a, in a circle. I'm talking about do you use cycling for everyday transport? Yeah, no, of course I do. Um, I, th- I think that's been one of the real positive elements of of my recovery. I think. You know, obviously at the Olympics, I was pretty, you know, in love with the sport of cycling and before that as well. Um, then I kind of started to fall out of love with cycling. Um, and luckily, kind of through my kind of rehab, I've, I've found that kind of childhood love for it again. And, and you know, I've got a really kind of beat up old pub bike, I call it, mm. um, which I just go and pot around the neighborhood on. Um, I've started crashing a bit more, which is unfortunate. Um, you know, I'd say in the last kind of 10 years, I've had three crashes, but in the last nine months, I've had two of those three. Um, so I think that's maybe just a symptom of the retirement that you start to over anticipate, you know, how, how good you were. Um, but no, I, it, I still, I still love it. A bit of a giveaway there. Are you like coming back from the pub and crashing? When are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, no, when I've crashed, I've been uh, full likelihood up and expecting to do a couple of hours on the road. All right, okay. Yeah, there's been no, there's been no drinking and cycling on my watch. Uh, as a good antidoper should be, if you, you should just like your body should be a temple, shouldn't it? Yeah, and I love I love the freedom of it, and that's something I found again. You know, it's you know beforehand British cycling can measure you know twenty different metrics that will measure specific things a thousand times a second, so there's no hiding at all. But you know, quite often I find myself going out without a cycle computer, without any kind of good idea about how long I want to be in, be out for, what direction I want to go in. Um, it's just freedom, and that's 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 to me is is kind of what cycling's all about. It's about getting out there and exploring and, and having that headspace and i'm just so fortunate that i found it again and you mentioned hindsight a few minutes ago and i actually got an email about this uh, uh, uh this morning so i'm clearly on your mailing list um for this particular <laughs> so so tell us what hindsight is and how you you got in touch with with physicist alex mcdonald yeah, so me and Alex were were friends at school, um, and then we we lost touch, and then we kind of found our paths crossing again. Um, you know, he came up with this concept of uh, which I think is a fantastic idea, which is a uh, a pair of uh, sunglasses which have um, semi transparent angled lenses at the side, um, and that basically allows you to extend your periphery to what's going on behind you. Um, and if you really focus, you can read stuff like number plates of people that are coming up behind you, or, or more importantly, if the driver's on their phone, or whether you can make that all-important eye contact to make sure that they've seen you. Um, and as a as a cyclist that's had the odd tussle with traffic in the past, um, 
it just seemed like this was an instance where information was going to be power. Um, so I'm, I'm more than happy to to kind of lend my name to it and be part of the project. Um, it's going to be really exciting, and I hope it makes a big change to a lot of cyclists out there. Whether you're commuting, competitive, or hobbyist, you know, whatever. I think I think having that extra awareness is going to be key. And the best bit is it doesn't it doesn't look like a safety feature. Um, you know, a lot of cyclists are quite can be quite snobby about high-vis vests and putting millers on their handlebars. Um, but what we've got is a really simple product, which uh, which hopefully makes you safe out in the road. And it's quite an analog product in that, you know, there are products out there, there's an Israeli pair of sunglasses with, with basically a camera in, and that mm. relates to, like, you know, a head-up uh, display. And when I, when this press release came through, I'm looking, well, where's the, you know, where's the batteries? Where I can't see the camera. It's like, oh, hang on. No, it's it's genuinely um, in in integral to the product. It's not it's, no camera involved here. It's it's literally smoke and mirrors in that it's a smoked yeah. lens with with a kind of a, a, a it's not a mirror, is it? It's just it's just the the surface is reflective. Yeah, slightly slightly reflective, so it doesn't impede your forward vision. But um, you know, I just say like I th- sometimes the simplest solutions are the best, and. Uh, you know, there'll be a lot of cyclists or athletes or anyone out there who who loathe batteries and faff and all that kind of stuff. So we think we've kind of delivered what's actually a better product um, that performs, uh, you know, those functions far more simply. Um, and in a way, kind of analog is, is a pretty beautiful solution for this problem. Mm. And that launches, I mean, in effect, when I got the email today, so it, it's basically launching on Kickstarter now. Yeah, so we've we've been quite fortunate with um, some capital investment uh, from various different bodies, and now we're looking to take it to the next level with Kickstarter. So, if you uh, go to our website, which is uh, hindsight.store, and um, we're also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, you'll find a link to the Kickstarter page from there. And we'd really appreciate appreciate your listeners' support. Uh, how about your future? So, because you were mentioning a coffee brand there as well. What, what what's Callum Skinner doing now? What are you actually physically doing to 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 pay for food? Yeah, um, I think you know everyone would love to kind of know the answer to this, but I'm kind of just embracing the the chaos, having been so focused on one project for for a long time. Um, you know, I'm quite fortunate to be doing some work for Morgan Stanley um, at the moment, uh, as well as having some ongoing projects with. Uh, Sports Direct from a marketing capacity, done some stuff with Science and Sport as well. Um, and that's the kind of day-to-day stuff that that pays the bills. But, um, you know, I'm really enjoying that challenge of being kind of behind the camera, I guess. Um, having been in, on the other side, I really feel like I can get the best out of athletes for kind of various campaigns and all that kind of thing. So I've been really enjoying it. And uh, thankfully, uh, the money's not dried up yet. So um, should should be fine on food for the near future. Thanks to Callum Skinner there. Links to his social media and to his sunglasses and coffee brands can be found on the show notes at the-spokesmen.com. I'm hoping to bring you the next show, uh, minus Chris Baldwin, of course, uh, within the next few days. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.